When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not, again, destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, uh, come among us now. Open your word to us by your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. What is your most fundamental identity? Identities are complicated things, and we all have a number of identities. Uh, Some of them may be pretty cultural. You might be a Packers fan. You might be a Republican or a progressive. Maybe they're a little less tied to our culture. Maybe you are a parent or a teacher, or you see yourself as a professional. There are even identities within our church. Some of us are church leaders. Some of us serve the church in various ways. Others are linchpins of our community and have all sorts of social connections. None of these are bad identities, uh, but none of them can be our fundamental identity. They don't provide a solid foundation for who we can be, who we are. The Packers lose. In fact, they lose fairly frequently. (laughs) Our political parties fail to deliver. Uh, That's, if you know one thing about political parties, it's that they fail to deliver. But even some of those more core identities fail. Our families break down. Our children don't live out the way, live their lives the way that we want them to. Our jobs are unstable. And eventually, we hopefully retire and lose that identity as well. Even our churches disappoint us. Those church identities break down. And sometimes that happens because of our own sin. Our text this morning considers a different fundamental identity. It offers us the fundamental identity of a child of God, a beloved child. Hosea actually presents several analogies for our relationship with God throughout his book. 
the first and most famous is the beginning chapters where Hosea presents uh, God as a husband and us as a, a wife, an unfaithful wife. But Hosea 11, our text this morning, considers um, us as the children of the Father. And it's really a lament over a wayward child. In verses 1 through 4, uh, Hosea presents us with God's great love for us. It's incredibly tender. It presents God as a father holding his, hand, holding his child's hands as that child learns to walk. It presents God as a father who bends down and gives food to his child. Now, this brings up, I think, another fundamental identity that, that sometimes creeps in, and that's the identity of sinners. In fact, I think that's fairly common in the church. Often we refer to ourselves as sinners, and sometimes we follow Paul in talking about ourselves as the chief of sinners, right? But I, I think we need to look at that First Timothy text because it says something there that I don't think we always remember. Here's what Paul actually writes in First Timothy. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. What Paul is saying there is not that our fundamental identity is as sinners. What he's saying there is that he is the worst of sinners. He persecuted the church. He did all sorts of evil, and yet God's love for him and his mercy for him was greater than that. It's actually God's beloved children. That is our truest identity. There's a creation-fall-redemption issue here. Creation is the fundamental identity, right? Creation is uh, what God originally designed. He originally designed us to be his image bearers. And in the fall, in our sin, we do distort that. We mess up that relationship. We mess up that image. But we do not erase that fundamental relationship. God's love for his children is more fundamental than our sin. But we do sin. And Israel sinned. And in this text, in verses 5 through 7, we read about God's discipline. This is parental discipline. And just... To, uh, to be upfront, I am not trying to get into how you should discipline your children. Uh, I don't want to go anywhere near that. But I do want to talk about what parental discipline is, what the idea is, right? The theory behind parental discipline is that we temporarily discipline our children. We temporarily cause them a little bit of harm, a little bit of pain and suffering to prevent greater harm, greater pain and suffering. For example, if my child wants to touch the stove, right, is trying to touch the hot stove, and I slap his hand, 
What am I doing? I'm not trying to cause him pain. I, that's not my goal. My goal is for him to avoid the pain of touching the hot stove. And I do that by connecting in his mind that reaching for the stove and experiencing a little bit of temporary pain. And that's what God describes here. He says, my, my people are trying to abandon me, and so I will give them a taste of what that's like. I will let them abandon me temporarily. I will let them be conquered. I will let them face their enemies without me. And God says, my hope is that they will turn back to me. In verse 8 and 9, I think we just see the heart of God. How can I give you up, Ephraim? Philosophical theology is really important, um, but we have to read it in context of what God has revealed to us. The philosophers will tell us that God cannot be changed, and that's true, but we have to read here what Scripture tells us. God is distraught. God cares about how his children respond to him. This is a lament. God is experiencing the rejection of his children. God cares how we respond to him. God is not, um, Im, Im, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He's not stoic. He's not in the sky um, and he just offers us a choice, follow me or don't follow me, and I don't really care which one you take. That's not the God that, that scripture describes. Scripture describes a God who cares for us, who cares how we respond, who is even pained. It's hard to believe this, but it mirrors Jesus' lament. In, in Matthew 23, um, Jesus looks over Jerusalem, and he, he cries. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. It matters to God how we respond to him. And Israel didn't desire the father-child relationship with God that he offered to them. They ultimately rejected him. But Jesus teaches us to embrace this relationship. First, he models this relationship for us. Um, Jesus is confident uh, to really a stunning degree uh, that God is his father. In Luke 2, um, we read this text, this story that for parents, I think, should be infuriating. Um, it is for me. Jesus is in the temple and his parents are searching for him frantically. And when they find him, Jesus says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus, even as a 12-year-old, has this firm understanding that God is his father. Um, an understanding that his parents didn't quite grasp. But Jesus also, at the end of his life, displays this same uh, incredible trust 
and reliance on his father. His last words as he dies were, Father, into my hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus, as he dies, trusts his father, trusts that God is his father. And what's even more surprising is Jesus invites us to have that same relationship with God. And this is, this is bizarre. This is not something that philosophers will understand. Because there is an enormous gap between creation and creator. Right? We've talked about that gap before. So, if this isn't surprising to us, that God is our Father, we've become desensitized. God is God, and we are not, and yet, God invites us to this parent-child relationship with him. And our sacred reading this morning uh, was, was about how God actually cares about our day-to-day experience. He cares what we wear. He cares that we have enough to eat. Um, sometimes I've, I've gone back and forth with people on the issue of whether or not we should pray to the saints. And one of, one of the arguments that I've heard is, well, God doesn't care. This is like a, a lower-level official in God's government that we should come to. And that makes t- sense to some extent, right? Um, my neighbor wants to replace our shared mailbox. And we're not going to go to the Postmaster General of the United States, right? I mean, we're going to maybe talk to someone at the post office um, who's making, you know, 12 bucks an hour. Um, But that's not what Scripture says about God, right? It doesn't say God doesn't have time for your concerns. Um, Talk to someone lower on the totem pole. No, it, it says that God does care, that God is intimately involved in our lives. And that's, that's the relationship that Jesus invites us into. So, how do we live into this relationship? Well, it's great to have Chris back from vacation, um, and it's wonderful how he's able to riff on the texts in the bulletin, but he stole my first point. Um, there, are, there are behaviors in the family of God, Right? Um, these, there, are, there are behaviors in every family, um, but the early church viewed Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount in particular as, a, as the family manual for being a Christian, for the Christian life. There are some shocking um, behavioral standards. Uh, we read one of them, don't, don't be worried about how you're going to live, but there are others too, right? Forgive those who uh, wrong you, um, these are really very countercultural then and today. But again, more shocking is the repeated phrase, your heavenly father. Christ gives us these, uh, these instructions, but he keeps telling us, um, your heavenly father cares. So, it is, uh, these, are, these are behavioral expectations for the family of God. And these are, it's normal for families to have these. I'm sure your families have them, though you probably have, don't consider them very often. But you do consider them when you get married. Uh, my in-laws, a couple Christmases ago, decided that we should all spend Christmas morning in our pajamas. 
Okay? Now, <laughs> see, that's what they thought. You'd fit in very well. I am, I'm uncomfortable with that idea. Um, but, but living into their family, right? Participating in this family is something that I wanted to do. And so I was wearing pajama pants with the rest of them. And, and that's, that's how the family of God is too. Uh, there are things that we do as a people, as a family, that are uncomfortable. But that is how you participate in our family life, in our shared life together. Um, if, you, if you experience, a gr- if you have a grumbling and critical attitude, right, that, that's not going to fit with our family. It's like, it's like sitting down to Sunday dinner and, and just keeping an empty plate and saying, I, I don't want to eat any of this food. I don't like any of this food. Right? You, it's not that you're going to get thrown out. They're not going to say, well, you aren't a child of this family anymore, but you're not going to share in the joy and the community and the fellowship that is eating a meal together with your family. If, if your primary objective in life is improving your job position or salary, it's like sleeping through a family breakfast, right? Where everybody is, you know, making toast and waffles and pancakes and eggs, and you're just sleeping in. If you don't care about your brothers and sisters in the family, that's like, that's like not caring about your brothers and sisters. John 15, 10 Uh, Jesus says to to his people, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying, make yourself at home. This is how you make yourself at home in my love. You do the things that I've instructed you. Take off your coat. Take off your shoes. Sit down and enjoy fellowship with me. The second way that we can live into this relationship with God is by giving him our gifts. Um, I think it's easy for us to imagine um, being productive, right? Maybe some of us aren't productive, but we can imagine it. Um, Say you decide to make some extra income, and you decide to sew some sweaters or knit some sweaters, right? So you make your Etsy shop, and you start knitting, but it turns out you're not all that great at knitting. And your sweaters come out with a lot of holes. So you start shipping these orders off, and they they all start coming back. You have to refund the, uh, the payments, and your sweaters just aren't good enough that anyone would pay you to make them. But you think, okay, well, what if I you know, go to Christmas this year and start handing out these sweaters uh, to the people who love me, you're going to get a a better response, right? I mean, often people will wear them just because they love you, even if they don't particularly like these sweaters. This is even more extreme when it comes to the way that God views our uh, works, the good things that we do. You can, if you spend your life trying to earn God's favor, as, 
trying to live into the contract, right? Having a business relationship with God. Okay, I will do X, Y, and Z, and then God will bless me. It's not going to work. You will spend your life getting returns. You'll have to process those refunds because the best things that you can do will still be tainted with your sin. But, but, Jesus invites us to a different kind of relationship, to a parent-child relationship with a God who loves us, with a God who wants to receive your gifts. God is looking for an excuse to bless his children. In Christ, God is willing, God wants to overlook these, the holes in our sweaters. He's, he wants to overlook and forgive the sin that corrupts us, and he wants to welcome us as children. In Jude, uh, this is what the apostle writes. He says that God is going to, God is eager to present, uh, sorry, Jesus will present us into God's presence with great joy. It matters to God. It matters to God when we reject him. It matters to God, and we read this lament, but there is another um, there is another side. God rejoices. God rejoices when we do reciprocate his love. He cares about how we respond, and he wants us uh, to come into his presence. He wants the gifts that we offer him. He wants us to be part of his family, and he wants to present us uh, in heaven with great joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you taught us to walk. You held us up. You fed us. You called us to be your children, your sons and your daughters. You called us into the relationship that you share with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray that you will accept our gifts, that you will accept our love, that you will rejoice in us as your beloved children so that we can rejoice in you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.